0: There were many other moments when you're stuck coordinating between the accounting firm, the lawyers, the bankers, and just trying to navigate all the complexities associated with the process. And there's just tons of things that kind of come up and you have to really deal with on the spot. And these are things that sort of unique to the company or just unique to uh, the folks involved if you haven't necessarily dealt with that specific issue before.
1: This is Retained Learnings podcast where Canadian finance leaders share strategic advice and potential solutions to answer some of the finance department's most important questions. I'm your host, Rob Kazam, the founder and CEO of Float. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something from today's episode. When a company decides to go public, it's a monumental moment. But IPOs are intense, and a CFO is going to be a key member of the team that makes it happen. The list of preparations will be extensive and the finance team will need to work closely with outside firms to get everything done. It's reasonable to assume that finance leaders who have never gone through the process will have an infinite list of questions and even some blind spots to maneuver. So in this episode of Retained Learnings, I'm joined by Ryan Levenberg, currently CFO at Hi Mama, and previously the CFO of Q4 when the company went public in October, 2021. In our conversation, Ryan Shares at Q4 worked through key preparations, how the finance team was involved, and some of the investments in systems, staff, and processes that he put in place well before the IPO that helped make it a success. But maybe most importantly, Ryan Shares advice about how valuable it is to be a part of a professional community. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us on Retained Learnings. To start, I'd love to hear a bit about your career
0: background and what led you to join Q4 in late 2014. Yeah, Rob, thanks for having me on uh, on the show. So I have a pretty typical background, I would say. I spent uh, five years prior to joining Q4 at PwC um, in the audit practice there. And what was really unique about my experience there is I actually was exposed to a lot of different types of transactions uh, in addition to just a regular sort of audit work. I was hooked up with a bunch of partners that were doing a bunch of debt work, IPO work, uh, M&A work. So I saw a bunch of really interesting transactions, albeit from the auditor perspective, which was quite unique. And the second really interesting piece about my experience there is that towards the end of my time there, I ended up being connected with a partner who was building out the emerging tech practice. And I kind of reopened my eyes to what was happening in Toronto from a tech scene perspective. And so just working with early stage tech companies in the city, very much solidified exactly where I wanted to go next. As I was looking to exit the firm, having conversations with folks in the tech industry on the investing side or on the operating side, I found out pretty quickly that I wanted to be on the operating side. And so I think I made the right decision. And as you said, um, ended up joining Q4 in late 2014. And tell me a bit about the, the company when you joined. How many staff
1: were there? What was the business like? For those not uh, aware of Q4, tell us a bit about the business.
0: So Q4 was kind of best known back then as like a specific investor relations website offering and had just started to begun some other kind of webcasting capabilities for public companies. We were about 40 or so people back then, about five months prior to joining the company completed a series A. uh, And that was really the first amount of kind of say significant institutional capital that the company had raised. And that really set us on a, on the kind of regular trajectory to being venture capital and then eventually private equity backed.
1: What was the goal, the time for the company? Was it to go public? Was there a vision of, of a liquidity event
0: in the future? I think everyone would love to say that the vision was to go public. I don't think that was the case. I think it was, you know, how can we build a, a large, durable, great business? And I think if you do that, then the outcomes sort of offer themselves up, you know, whether that be a M&A opportunity, ability to take the company public, or there's a a private equity transaction that takes place. So as much as I would love to say, yes, you know, we, we absolutely knew we wanted to go public at that time. It was uh, much more focused. I think on just building a great company. So fast forwarding to 2020, when you became CFO, how had the company changed? Quite a bit. I mean, overall size and complexity, just number of heads and breadth of the operations. As I kind of just said, it was most known for sort of an investor relations website offering. And we had then, um, expanded that and to much more of a platform so there was much more of like a multi-product component to it we were also operating at at that point in multiple geographies and had already completed a bunch of different M&A and so it was not just an organic growth story anymore but we were really thinking about how can we expand this from an inorganic perspective as well and we were in true scale mode we were trying to execute on a really ambitious vision which was something that was kind of new to the capital markets and something that we were looking to to offer our clients and our competitors at the times uh, we're necessarily doing. The company
1: ipo would in October, 2021. Take us back to the day you found out that that decision had been made, you know, to proceed with an IPO. What was your initial reaction and
0: what was the feeling on the finance team? In very early 2021, a lot of discussions with the board and bankers around, you know, what it might look like to kind of contemplate uh, proceeding with an IPO. And so the decision was made in late February, March to proceed. So then plans started to get put in place. And, you know, when the news was shared with the team, I mean, the team was absolutely excited, but also equally apprehensive just in terms of all the moving pieces associated with being in a position to do it. Um, Finance is not, you know, the only stakeholder and department that's required to execute on that. You know, there's obviously, it's a cross-collaborative initiative, but finance needs to, produce a lot of the kind of core requirements in order to make that process happen. And so everyone was really excited to be able to get that experience from a career perspective, but certainly appreciative of where we were in terms of climbing the mountain to be able to get the process done. And as the CFO at that time, how did you prepare for
1: the IPO and what were the kind of key key fundamental aspects of that?
0: I would say in terms of prepping for it, like we had made a bunch of leading investments in people and processes and systems well ahead of time. I think that was something that that we did really well at Q4, something that I personally pushed for and something that my CEO, Daryl, was, was, was very supportive of as well in making those leading investments well ahead of time. And so I think we were in a, a decently strong position in terms of c- sort of the core foundational requirements to be able to take the business public, but more needed to be done. And so... We started to kind of figure out exactly where we were missing capabilities and, and put plans in place in order to, uh, to bring those in.
1: What role did the finance team play? Was everyone
0: involved? What were the key aspects they were focused on? Absolutely. Every single person, top to bottom, needs to own part of that process. And even though a bunch of the planning work was sort of done in confidence and not necessarily shared initially, at least those that were in the tent at the time, really understood just how important it is for us to be able to close a month end on time and to get all the accounting done properly, really like all the assertions across the financial statements, mastered as soon as possible. And so even though we weren't necessarily sharing that news with everyone right away, it became very clear to all the managers, at least around like what level of game we needed to kind of move ourselves up to, to be able to be in a position to do that. How we did that was... Using this kind of single master checklist, I would say, that had probably hundreds of rows of different tasks and activities that, that we knew that we needed to complete in the right sequence to ensure that everything was kind of ready in time. And that was really top to bottom across all the main domains that are required from like an internal hygiene perspective to be ready to take a company public and then be a good public company after the fact.
1: Any challenges you can share
0: along the way that you faced in preparations? Yeah, so there are certainly many. I mean, the one that I would call out was probably the requirement that we had, which was to convert from US GAAP reporting to IFRS. And that's just not something I would necessarily suggest doing alongside the process. It creates a lot of complexities when you're a decently large enough business and there's a lot of historical kind of technical transactions that have taken place and you need to go through all the differences and start to think about the, the business differently. If there are implications around your P&L, your balance sheet, to do it at the same time in IPO, just creates a lot more of a headache because you have to sort of get up to speed with a lot of different accounting and then speak to it in market as well. But I think in addition to that, there were, you know, just many other moments when you're stuck coordinating between the accounting firm, the lawyers, the bankers, and just trying to navigate all the complexities associated with the process. And there's just tons of things that kind of come up and you have to really deal with on the spot. And these are things that, you know, maybe sort of unique to the company or just unique to uh, the folks involved if you haven't necessarily dealt with that specific issue before. So post-IPO,
1: what really changed about your role in leading the finance function that we
0: may not know or someone ought to know if they're going into an IPO? It's a great question. I mean, I think the biggest thing that kind of jumps out is just the timing and how fast everything needs to happen. So from closing the books to reviewing a first cut of numbers to developing a story to then everything around the audit firm coming in and doing their review to getting, you know, that process fully done to then preparing for all the kind of investor relations related activities. It's it's really quite fast paced. And I think, you know, new public companies take the most amount of time in order to report. But the companies that report a few short weeks after each quarter end, like hats off to those processes because they're doing just a phenomenal job. And that's a well-oiled machine because I I now um, have a much more appreciation for just how difficult it is to be able to report that quickly. Despite it being his
1: first time leading a finance team through an IPO process, Ryan had laid a solid foundation for success. He mentioned investing in people, processes, and systems in the years prior to the IPO. This has been a common piece of advice on this season of retained learnings. Whether you're about to raise funds, get acquired, or execute an IPO, you'd be thankful for proper documentation and building a solid team well in advance. Let's hear about some of those key investments Ryan made and what advice he'd give to other finance leaders that might need to prepare to take their company public.
0: So Ryan, after the IPO was completed, what did you do next personally? Yeah, so I was there for around two quarters post-IPO and then uh, and then I decided that it was time for me to pursue another opportunity. At that point, I had been there for seven and a half years and really knew that I think I wanted to get back into an early stage business and take some of our learnings that I had through the Q4 journey and apply them to a new company. As difficult as as it was to to kind of make that call, I, I do believe that I've made the right one and uh, I'm really happy in the new place that I am. So looking back on the IPO process, what are some of the key lessons you learned that have stayed with you? To surround yourself with the best and most capable service providers, mentors that you possibly can. It's a unbelievably complex process, especially going through the first time. And you know there are really phenomenal folks out there that, ha- that kind of do this day in, day out. Uh, and they can provide just phenomenal guidance for you along the way. And I certainly felt that I was just supported in such a tremendous way.
1: You mentioned some specific investments you made before the IPO process started. Uh, can you share what those were specifically? Were they systems,
0: processes, um, anything that you'd call it? So I think it's across the board, Rob. You know, it's it's not just one. I think if you have the best systems, but no people to run them, I don't know if you're going to be in the best um, situation or position rather. For us, you know, specifics like moving over to a, a robust GL. We were on uh, NetSuite and I believe the company is still on NetSuite at this time. We had invested in solid FP&A software. We had been using Adaptive, which is just really great. Uh, You're able to run a lot of different FP&A scenarios. That was integrated well with NetSuite. One of the things leading up to it as well is we had implemented really good month-end close software. Uh, The month-end close becomes just unbelievably important when you're trying to hit all these reporting deadlines. And so just making sure that the team's aware of exactly what they need to do on on what specific day is is really important. That's on the system side. On the process side, we were not 100% sort of um, of the way there. I think we had to definitely do a bunch of the process work after we decided to go public, which I think a lot of companies face as well. On the people side, I think we were probably in in a good position there. We certainly had to harden The team after the decision was made with a few additional folks, but we had a pretty sizable team that was um, up for the challenge and we had been doing that in kind of stages of building. So as we as we grew revenue and as we grew complexity in terms of like additional geographies we were covering and additional uh, companies that we had acquired, we had um, added folks to the team to be able to support all those initiatives. If you were to go through an IPO process again, any key things you do differently? So now with the benefit of hindsight, maybe um, having time the market a little bit better. But no, in all seriousness, I think, you know, the team did a, a fantastic job with the actual execution of the process.
1: And if you were mentoring someone about to go through an IPO, what advice would you give them?
0: So I'd start by saying that it's probably one of the most amazing processes uh, I've ever been through. And I just thoroughly enjoyed it. To rely on the skills that got you in the position to be able to lead that process. So, I mean, if if you're the CFO of a company and the board's and trusting you to be the one to kind of help take the business public, then that should give you all the confidence in the world to be able to run with it. But I think the advice would be, and I kind of just said it is to to really surround yourself with the best lawyers, bankers, accountants, investor relations advisors, plug to Q4 on their capabilities and what they can do to support you. But they'll really guide you through all the complexities and just keep you in the right direction. And I look back on the process and just all the sort of late night conversations, weekend conversations that I had with all those different stakeholders in the process. And they, they really are able to um, help you get your head straight and, and, and work through anything that's come up and just a tremendous amount of respect for a bunch of those folks through the process.
1: It sounds like communities played a, a really important part in your career journey and this IPO process. Tell us a bit about your experience building a
0: community, as I understand you're a, a key leader now in Canada in this area. So back in uh, 2014, when I joined Q4, coming over from PwC, I'd never sort of worked as a head of finance before. The Toronto scene at that point, there weren't, you know, there were a few companies raising larger rounds, but there weren't too, too many. But we were on this journey and and, and so were a bunch of other, you know, very like-minded peers. And so what started out as pizza and beers in boardrooms, kind of a once a month meetup led to a Slack channel, led to... In-person meetups led to the community growing to today over around uh, 200 or so heads of finance, mostly in Toronto, but also across Canada. And so it's something that, you know, I never set out to kind of be the the center of this community. It It was something that I'm personally passionate about. I really do believe that a tech company or a startup bringing on the right finance individual early enough in the process or just at the right time can add a tremendous amount of value. And I'm, I'm obviously biased because I am one of those people. But I believe that we can really help navigate and, and be good counsel to CEOs and boards around, you know, certain decisions along the way. And so the sort of community was growing from a number of tech companies in Toronto specifically that had scaled and attracted institutional investment. And therefore, we're kind of bringing on, you know, more, seasoned finance leaders. And so we needed a place to connect and to swap stories and to help each other out. And so it's been great. I mean, it's just have built such phenomenal uh, relationships with so many people and have, have, have personally benefited in so many different ways, not just from meeting people, but also from getting advice at various points in terms of, you know, how to think about making certain decisions, whether that be Who's the right service provider for me at this time? Or, you know, who does someone specifically use in the U.S. for U.S. tax work? Or what banking partner is the right partner to use in Europe? There's just so many instances that, that come up in a of finances day to day. That's you're looking for these types of data points to be able to to just help make decisions.
1: And how does the group
0: work? Who can join? Are there any guidelines around it? I would say that the majority if not all of members have come in through word of mouth, typically it's just an email or some sort of Slack introduction to me, sharing this person's contact and asking if they'd be the right fit for the for the community. And historically, I've turned down very few people. You know, if if someone's not necessarily like a head of finance, then we sort of ask them, you know, maybe just wait until the community expands into additional role groups. But for now, it's predominantly heads of finance and. I love having conversations with folks who are, who are trying to join to just explain sort of, you know, why the community is here and, and what the purpose of it is. What are your plans for the group in 2023? Anything you can share? Yeah, so this is actually something that I'm really excited about and the timing's good. I've been uh, sitting on some ideas around how to more formally provide value to this community, which I'm just so passionate about. So there's sort of two components. The first one will be creating a more formal community home. There's a lot of resources, whether it be templates or content or professional development or events that I think the community could really benefit from. So in addition to that, I've been tinkering as well with a small little kind of uh, application that tries to answer very simple questions in a very simple way, or rather very complex questions in a very simple way. And that be it like, who is your tax partner in the US or what software do you use for fp a Or in your case, Rob, you know what credit cards are most frequently used? These questions come up all the time in the community. And right now the community lives in Slack and a lot of these questions get asked and then the sort of answers disappear and it's quite hard to search for it. And so I'm about halfway through creating uh, a pretty simple web application that will aggregate this information and, and serve it back to the community so that folks can access the insights and really just help make better, faster decisions. And so that combined with that bringing the community into a more formal home online are, are two big things I'm really excited about for 2023. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Ryan. This was fun. I really appreciate you
1: joining us. Where can our guests find more about you and the finance community that you lead? Yeah, thanks,
0: Rob. It's super, super great to be here. Thanks for the insightful questions. Um, really great to share. I can be found on LinkedIn. In terms of the community group itself, probably more to come in in 23 when we roll things out more formally. So for now, uh, just hit me up on LinkedIn if you would like.
1: Thanks a lot, Ryan. This was was fun. As a company founder, I can't stress how much I agree with Ryan. Surrounding yourself with people you trust, with people you can ask for advice to help guide you through the ups and downs of your business and career is priceless. If you're going through the IPO process for the first time, there's going to be blind spots. There's going to be situations where you won't have all the answers. That's when a strong network of experienced professionals can help make you feel a little bit more confident, even if it's as simple as hearing someone say, you're doing the right thing. And if you're looking for advice about what systems and processes to use at any point in your career, a community of finance professionals is the best place to ask. Brian's community is pretty good evidence that there are a lot of people out there willing to help. We know it, it isn't always easy to find them though. That's one of the reasons I wanted to create this podcast. I wanted to give Canadian finance professionals the chance to hear how other finance leaders solve common problems. So I'd love to dig into what questions you'd like answered on a future episode of Retained Learnings. So tag at Float on social media with your questions or suggestions for future guests. This episode brings us to the end of season one. I've really enjoyed the chance to speak with all the guests and hear their unique stories. And I hope you found their advice valuable. We'll be back with season two of Retained Learning, so be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Retained Learnings. We want to reach as many Canadian finance professionals as possible. So if you have two minutes to spare, we'd love for you to rate and review the new show. Sharing on social media helps too, and you can tag at Flowcard. I'm Rob Kazam, and until next time, take care.